AnteUp is your poker magazine dedicated to the everyday player and their poker rooms. Pick up a free copy at your favorite poker room nationwide each month. But AnteUp is much more than a magazine. Visit AnteUpMagazine.com daily for breaking news and each week download our award-winning poker cast. Join us on our action-packed poker cruises to exotic destinations. AnteUp, it's your poker magazine. From the Anti-Up headquarters in Tampa Bay, Florida, it's the Anti-Up PokerCast. And now, here are two guys who think they know how to play poker, Chris Casenza and Scott Long. It's July 6, 2018. You're listening to the greatest PokerCast that has ever been invented. I'm Chris Casenza. <laughs> I'm Scott Long. <laughs> well, I mean, it's true, right? We're, we're the only PokerCast out there. Uh, yes, I mean, in this world now, we can say anything, and it's true. So That's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Nothing about, you know, you have the uh, burden of proof, that you have to prove anything. It doesn't matter. It does not matter what we say. Yeah, but apparently I have a lot of burden of proof to prove that we set a Guinness World Record in our town. This week, so <laughs> we'll figure that. You know, that's important, that you need... Reams and reams of evidence, but you know anything else? No. You know, I I read something that uh, Guinness has a forty-page document that describes what a waffle is, so that when you try to stack up the most waffles in the world ever in one stack, you have to actually have what they consider to be a waffle, and it's forty pages to prove what a waffle is. So, I think I can understand that you have to wait a while to get your record, you know, authorized or whatever. Their, their general guide to evidence is at least 60 pages. And uh, there's additional reams of pages for every different award. So, yes, wow. they are very, very deliberate there and thorough. So, Well, no matter what happens, congratulations. Uh, looks yes. like it was a, a great thing. And, uh, man, you, mean, you, you, you broke the record. So whether they say it's true or not, you had more people eating watermelon at one time than anybody. So And you raised all that money, so that was great. It was a good day been a great day for lots of players at the World Series, though. Here's uh, this week's highlights from the World Series of Poker. Uh, Lauren Klein won event number 49, the $10,000 PLO 8-handed championship to become the third person to win a bracelet in three consecutive summers in the moneymaker area. The others were Alan Cunningham and Matt Matros. Joey Coden won event number 53, the $1,500 PLO 8, to earn his first bracelet in a final table that included Bruno Fatuzzi, Elliot Ezra, Mike Matisau, and Daniel Negreanu. Jessica Dolly of Florida won event number 57, the $1,000 ladies event. Jean Robert Ballon won event number 58, the $5,000 No Limit Hold'em six-handed for his first World Series of Poker bracelet. He previously had two runner-up finishes. Mike Takayama won event nineteen. Uh, event number fifty. Look, I nailed the name and then I messed up the number. <laughs> you messed up a number. Mike Takayama won event number fifty-nine, the one thousand dollar no limit hold'em super turbo bounty, becoming the first player from the Philippines to win a bracelet. And finally, seven thousand eight hundred seventy-four players entered this year's main event. That's the second most in history after two thousand six. And four thousand five hundred seventy-one of them entered on day one C, making that the largest flight in history. First prize will be $8.8 million. Man, I got a lot to say today. All right, go ahead. Uh, first, I remember when Warren Klein won his first one. And by the way, that's the PLO 8-handed championship, not the PLO 8 
handed yeah. championship. I don't know if people might have got confused by that, but uh, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, and I think they're all PLO too, or something like that. I mean, he he's definitely uh, a great pot limit Omaha player. Um, but it's just I remember when he won his first one. I thought I used to like the like the Reno area or something, and that's crazy to win one every summer for three years in a row. Yeah, so I wonder what, what what's your opinion? What's more impressive, winning two bracelets in a summer, or winning, or let's say three bracelets in a summer, or three bracelets in consecutive summers? Well, three in one summer, obviously, to me, would be more remarkable than managing really? one. I would disagree. So that's why I brought it up. Yeah, Excellent. good. I mean, for me, winning one, you know, a year. I mean, that's that's remarkable i'm not saying it's not remarkable but to do it three times in one summer that's just unheard of the odds are if something is much more difficult to do in my mind it would have to be to do it in such a short period of time i know you real i think you're going to start saying like oh people they get hot and they you know whatever so it's easy for them to win yeah but but seriously to still to do it all at once is is that's geez you know i I mean that's that's crazy Let's start with that, all right? So, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I think my point is that the players get on hot streaks, and and and, and that, and it's, I think the word hot streaks is weird because I think it's just confidence. Once you win, then you have more right. confidence to right. play better, right? So, yeah. so if you do that in the summer, it, to me that seems easier because you're you're feeding off of that confidence going into the very next day. Whereas these folks, you got a whole year in between, <laughs> so. They're not connected in any way in terms of the hot streak or whatever you want to call it. So it's just more straight consistency. But, um, of course, it also depends on the, the number of people in the tournaments and what tournaments and blah, 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 all that stuff we've talked about before. But um, it's close. But I would say I think the consecutive summers is, is more impressive to me than the. Sounds like a poll question for any up fans group. It does. Um, I mean, that's. that's- Wonderful. Yeah, I don't know people uh, what they think and why. Uh, to me, I just think to win one is is remarkable, but to win three in the, in a span of uh, forty five days, you're winning a bracelet every fifteen days when you can't win one your whole life most of the time. I mean, one every summer. Now you've won one, you've kind of figured out how to do it. You got a whole year to prepare for the next one, especially if it's the same sort of event. And then you've got seventy eight events the next year to win one out of seventy eight. Whereas now you've got to win three out of 78 that's like you know one every 15 day it's just it's remarkable to me that to do it all in one. I, although has anybody won three in one summer i can't remember oh uh, wow it seems like that has happened but i, I know jeffrey lissandro won like two and was like in a bid for three or maybe i, I can't remember if anybody's ever won three now it's it's probably looked I'm at pretty sure, the show, but, but i can't i can't place it so i won't um, but yeah that would if somebody won three in one summer i would just be like that's like the greatest accomplishment ever you know Guaranteed to have the Player of the Year wrapped up. That's for sure. Um, but anyway, yeah, just I remember, I remember when he first won his event, and I thought, wow, this, this is a kind of a cool story back then. And now he's won one every year since. It's crazy. The other thing too is I always like to bring this up when uh, Jean Robert does anything. <clears throat> the first time I ever met him was right after the Survivor thing, right. and uh, it was still before they revealed who won Survivor or something. I think I'm not sure, but it was at Foxwoods. And I thought, well, I'll interview him for the show, or I'll interview him for the magazine. I can't remember at that point what it was. I think it was the magazine. Yeah, I think it was the magazine. So I go up behind him, and he's he's like walking away from me. And I'm like, hey, Bobby. And he stops, and he turns around, and he looks at me, and he goes, who are you? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm Chris from Annie Up. And he's like, he's like, I don't know you. You don't call me Bobby. <laughs> Only my friends call me Bobby. 
And I wanted to just be like, okay, I've got enough now. I don't need to talk to you anymore. I know yep. what to say. See you. Put but, on. But uh, I was like, oh, sorry, uh, do you prefer Mr. Ballon? He's like, no, just call me Jean Robert. And I'm like, okay. So then I interviewed him or something. But, but I mean, it's hard to believe it's been this. It's taken this long for him to win because he, like, he had that huge, that 50k uh, Players Championship. He had that huge run there and won like 700 grand in that. And he seems to be in the news every year with the World Series somehow. But he keeps, I guess he's runner up. So finally, Jean Robert gets his bracelet. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I either host or play trivia at, at a local pub every Tuesday, and if this was a true-fall question, I would have said, true, <laughs> to him winning a bracelet. I mean, yeah. it just it, it's kind of boggled my mind when you read that, that that he hadn't yet. So, yeah, that was interesting. Um, and uh, I know we talked about this before, but I always love when these people win their first bracelet, uh, which is always very exciting. But then also against a table like this Joey guy, yeah. man. Yeah. Those are tough players in PLO eight. So wow, that's even more impressive. Yeah, and I mean, at the final table and go and feel confident that you can win. <laughs> I mean, I'm a pretty confident guy, but I think if I sat down at that table, I'd be like, I, I, everything's going to need to go right for me today. Here's one of the questions that you know you brought up the thing about Lauren. What's easier, beating a table of unknowns or playing against all these guys and having them duke it out against each other? You know that Negrano and Matisau were jawing at each other. You know that those guys know how each other plays, so they might eliminate each other while you're just sitting back picking up smaller you know, pots here and there. And then when it comes right down to it, you know they're short stacked, then you can knock them out or something like that. So would it be that difficult if all four of these guys who have probably played millions of hands together, you know, do they play each other, knock each other out, and know each other's tendencies, and then you just swoop in and take the bracelet? You know, I want, or is it really that difficult? You know, I don't know. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Um, wow. But but I know I would be uh, <laughs> I was down. I'm like you got to be kidding. <laughs> you need to wear a pair of depends at that table, I think, because you'd be never mind. Uh, the best thing here is the the main event. You know, we just wrote that column was the last issue or the issue before issue before about you know has poker is it dying or anything like that? And I, we just said yeah right. Look at the Vegas numbers and tell me that people aren't playing poker anymore and you just can't do it. And look at this. I mean, it's almost eight thousand people in this main event. It's just crazy. Yeah. And then one day, day one C, that was unbelievable. Almost forty six hundred people in that one event. I mean, one uh, flight. That's crazy. Now, I imagine uh, obviously you have a lot of satellite winners getting in late, right? But uh, day one A was like less than a thousand. It was like nine hundred or something. <laughs> Jeez. So that's, it was kind of interesting to watch the breakdown of the uh, the different flights, uh, but because uh, you know always towards the end they get they get more because again because of satellites or people reentering. Here you can't re-enter, obviously. But um, well, the other thing too is for travel, people want to not waste money on a hotel room for three or four yeah. days when they don't have to. So they try to play toward the end of the flights um, to get closer to day, you know, day two or whatever. And so that that always increases. And uh, but still, I mean, forty five hundred people in one day—that's crazy. Yeah, and one <laughs> one flight for for the main event. Uh, wow. Crazy. Yeah. So I mean, you know, eight point eight million to first. That's that's what probably the second most ever, right behind Jamie's in two thousand six with twelve million. So, I would think so. Yes. Man, just insane the amount of stuff that's, you know, the numbers they, they're mind boggling. And you, it, after a while, sort of like what's going on in the in the world today, you start to become numb to this stuff. Yeah. You just right. you just you just you know, back in the day, it was like if that happened, it'd be the cover story of every poker magazine to be the lead story of every poker cast or whatever and i mean we're talking about now but and it's still remarkable but it's just the the numbers are mind-numbing they really are the amount of people that show up to play poker and can find the money to do it and 
man, just crazy. Yep. All right, so here's our annual. Uh, the annual. Say the same stuff. Sounds like it's every day. <laughs> uh, two players, John Johnny World Hennigan and David Oppenheim, have made it uh, onto the Poker Hall of Fame ballot for the first time, joining eight who have been there before: Chris Bjorn, David Chu, Maury S. Kendani. S. Kendani. You know. I know. I just have to slow down to say it because it's all <laughs> words. There. Bruno Fatuzzi, Mike Matisau, Chris Moneymaker, Matt Savage, and Huck Seed. The 28 living Hall of Fame members and an 18-person media panel today will vote uh, for two to join the Hall, and that should be announced pretty soon. I, first of all, I think it's it's a little bit offensive that the dead Hall of Fame members don't get the vote, right? Why is yeah. it just a lift once? Yeah. Yeah, get a seance going. <laughs> Light a candle. Get a Ouija board and spell out the name of the person they think is going to get in the Hall. Uh, I tell you, it gets harder and harder every year or I'm going to say this is the hardest one that I remember. Yeah, uh, but but I do have two. I you know every year I you know I flop around like a fish up here when we discuss this, but I, I do have a solid two. But uh, but I, I do I, I can't make a case for I would say at least eight of these, maybe nine. Yeah, yeah this is not easy. Um, I mean I I I guess I'll go first, and I would stick with Huxied still. Uh, I just I just would stick with Huxied. Um and then after that, I mean, any one of these guys, you know, Mattiso, you know, I mean, he's kind of quieted down lately, obviously, but um, he has pretty remarkable numbers. Moneymaker, obviously, if there's anybody in the world that deserves to be famous for poker, it's Chris Moneymaker. So, uh, World Hennigan is still winning bracelets, obviously, and still making final tables on top of that and almost winning another bracelet this year. So, um He's got the numbers and the stats and the longevity. Oppenheim has always played in the biggest games, and he's got all kinds of you know uh, titles and stuff. So you know Bjorn, of course, all his caches and bracelets and stuff, and Chu, of course. So I mean, it's just t- tough, tough to pull. But I, I would probably, if I had to pull two, it would be Seed and Moneymaker. Get them in, and then I'd go probably World and maybe Bjorn. So wow. okay, interesting. Um, all right, so this is my discussion I have every year, right? That one, we hate the fact that only two can get in, right? And also because there are different qualifications here and what what they should uh, look for. I mean, you've got flat out players and the best players in the world, which is what most of the Hall of Fame should be, right? Right. And then you have people that have actually helped the game in some way, um, and then you've had people that have some kind of an effect on the game. So, I mean, where, where do you rank all that stuff? So. Um, I'm going to go with Matt Savage. I, I love the guy. I know he's kind of young, so he's still got time to get in. But um, I, I just think the, the poker TDA has been such a big um, force in poker now. I mean, think about you know all of our call the floor and all that. It all goes back to the poker TDA rules, and that's all. Uh, obviously, he's had a lot of people helping him, but he was the guiding force and continues to be the guiding force for that. Um, so I, I, I don't think we should wait for him now to get in. I, I think so. He's he's an easy number one for me. And then after that's where it gets tough because we got some really good players here. Um, we got some people that have done some really good things in their country uh, to promote poker. And then of course then you got Chris Moneymaker, who um, a decent player, not as good as player as some of these other folks, but again, the uh, whole effect of <laughs> what he's what he's had done on poker. So. Yeah. Um, now I would say uh, there's no urgency to get him in because of that. You know he's still young as well too, and and it's not like that what he did for poker is ever going to be um, diminished over time, right? Right. 
So, but I, you know, I hate to be that guy where I'm like, hey, you know, because things are never going to change, we're just going to wait every year, and eventually we'll get you in 40 years from now. So, I do feel bad for that, but uh, th- that's why I would knock him off. Um, uh, I, so, I, I think if you look at what Bruno Fatuzzi's done in France and really br- introduced that game there and the a- Aviation Club and got that whole country going, uh, I, I always have a soft spot for the people that made the game more important to other people rather than the players. So he's my second one. And he's a great player, too. So kind of checks two boxes. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go Matt Savage and Bruno Fatuzzi this year. Wow. Um, here's the deal about your, um, hey, we can wait a while because they're young thing. And to me, it's like there's always going to be two players every year getting added to this list that or three or whatever it is that are going to be like, holy cow, those guys are Hall of Famers. It's just going to happen because so many people play and there's so many events that they can win and there's so many cash games going on that they can, you know, dominate or whatever. I think there's always going to be players that are going to get added to this list. And I think the longer you wait for someone like a moneymaker, the more removed people... I mean, there are kids playing poker right now who are in diapers when moneymaker did that. They don't even... They, they probably don't even know who he is. Yeah. You know, it's just like, you know... Uh, how many people know who Doyle Brunson really is now if they're 18 and playing poker in Florida? You know, right. So to me, I wouldn't wait too much longer for Moneymaker. That guy, I mean, to me, like I said, we talked. I mean, he, he's got a bracelet and he's got, you know, he's got some caches and he's got some whatever. But it's the whole, like you said, the definition of what is a Hall of Fame player. You know, they, they are pretty, on a lot of their, I, I, when we were first trying to become members of their board or whatever you want to call it, their panel they had this thing about what the their definition of what they thought you know somebody who had to play at a high level for a long time successfully blah 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 blah, and everything and then there was like those who contributed to the game and it's like okay so really when you think about how many people entered that main event this week that's not happening if chris moneymaker doesn't win that thing i mean it's just not and so yeah matt savage absolutely you know all these people deserve to be in um so it's just your definition. Like Hennigan, I mean, the the stats on Hennigan, just crazy. He's been around forever, and he's always wins. He's he's wins every year. It seems like he's got something. He's got five bracelets now. So, you know, I don't know. I, it's We have this conversation three or four times a year, and it's just I know we're going to have it again next week when we say yep. who won or who got in. Yep. So, all right, so you're going with Fatusi and Savage. I'm going with Moneymaker and Seed. Uh, what are the odds that those guys actually get in? Yes, yeah, so what's the odds that none of the four are getting in? <laughs> That's right, and exactly. Then, and that, that'll be the argument why we should not be on the panel, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> because yeah, we're not in the popular club, you know? <laughs> we're the AV club. Me and you were pushing yeah, TVs yeah, yeah. on we, carts we, down we the hallway. The, the far table with the lunchroom, right? Yep. Right. The jocks are at the table in the cafeteria. You and I are pushing the TVs on the carts down the hallway past it going, guys, let me sit with you and have a cheeseburger. <laughs> okay, any updates? We have four upcoming Any Up Poker Tour stops with four opportunities to play your way onto the cover of Any Up Magazine. Here's where we are going next. The Any Up World Championship and Any Up NorCal Classic at Thunder Valley Casino Resort in Lincoln, California, July 7th to the 29th. Any Up Poker Tour at Atlantis Casino Resort Spa in Reno, Nevada, August 16th to the 26th. Deep Stack Series at the Venetian Las Vegas, September 3rd to the 23rd, and Pearl River Poker Open at the Pearl River Resort in Choctaw, Mississippi, October 25th to November 4th. 
Also, we just announced our 2019 Antioch Poker Cruise schedule, which includes a 16-night Panama Canal crossing, an eight-night Southern Caribbean adventure, and two shorter weekend cruises. Also, don't forget our upcoming Tampa sailing October 29th to Mexico and Key West. Don't wait any longer because we're giving back the cabin soon. Uh, passengers on all sailings get a one-month membership to advanced poker training and a quick reference poker odds card from thegamblingschool.com. For more info, visit com. Each week we spotlight a listener who emails us at podcast at com. and if they haven't won something from us in the past year, just like we do with Call the Floor and Hand of the Week, we send them something cool. This week's prize is a setup of J-Design playing cards, the official playing cards of Antioch Poker Cruises, available at classicplayingcards.com comes from Todd McGee says does the big blind ante change the concept of defending the big blind especially when you are short stacked I am not a fan of defending but paying a big blind plus nine antes could change that especially if it's late in a tournament and I'm down to less than 10 big blinds that would be a big chunk of your stack to let go without a fight and one of the things that one of our ambassadors wrote me this week and he said hey I'm talking to one of the poker room managers up here and he wants to know what our feelings are on the big blind ante other what are the negatives from it and i wrote him back and i said well to be honest with you the only negative scott and i are really i think are hearing are two whiny things one is you know hey i don't want to pay the pay this amount when i'm short stacked and then i don't know something else and so i said to him you know that seems to be the only real problem here is that people when they get short stacked are complaining about it and that, right, and that seems to be really the only thing. It was like one other thing, but it's like that was really the big thing. Was when they get short, you know, and then like you said, like they feel more obligated to defend. Which who cares? I mean, that's hey, you know, that's your you're still playing a tournament. We're all playing the same rules. We're all playing with the same situation. So, as a poker player, you need to figure out the best strategy for that. So I don't know. Would would you would you be a defender now, or would you not defend? No, so what I wrote back to Todd was that nothing fundamentally has changed about defending your big blind with the big blind ante, right? Right. So, you know, you were going to pay those antes anyhow. You were just doing it over nine hands. Now you're doing it all together. So, um, plus, that money in the pot isn't any different now with the big blind ante than it would be with a traditional ante, right? The money's still the same in there. Yeah. Now, I know it comes out of your stack, so psychologically, it seems like it's your money, but it's not. It's money that it belongs to the pot and would be there in one way or the other. Um, so I don't think anything about this changes defending. So if you were the type that used to defend your blind, you still defend your blind. If you're the type that didn't doesn't like to defend your blind, then there's nothing here to make you change and defend your blind now. Um, but what it does do, though, is it puts more pressure on short stacks at the end to be more aggressive when they're in position before they get to that point where all their money is in the pot because they're playing both the big blind and the ante. Right. Um, so, again, you want to be – I think you want to – we've already talked about this. I'm, all, I'm a big fan of the 15 big blind shove now. Um, so and I think that's the big thing we see is we players just let themselves get blinded out. So this is going to put more pressure on you to actually take a stand in position with cards that you can control. You, know, you look down like, all right, I got an ace four. I'm shoving now versus waiting until you're the big blind and everything's in the pot and you got to go with whatever two cards the dealing gods give you that, right? Yep. Um, so I think that's, that's the big change. If you are just not as aggressive 
short stack at the end, you really need to be more aggressive now going with a big blind ante. So the fact that more players aren't going to do that, I think, is good. Um, it's actually good for players that understand that. It's going to be a, um, a benefit to us until those players learn to adjust. And if you're the player that does that, it's going to get tournaments are going to get harder for you until you learn to adjust and start shoving a little bit quicker. But but the actual the actual big blind when I'm the big blind and the Andes in there, I, I think that's a non non issue. It, it I agree. Yeah. I agree. I think it's just another aspect of the change of the game that you mean that you have to change and learn adjust to. It's just like anything else when you say you want to learn to play Omaha and you never played it before. You just you're learning something different of the game. Well, now it's a big blind ante is okay, this is my style, and when it gets to the fact that I have ten big blinds and I know the antis are coming around to me soon, you know, I'm going to pick a, a hand sooner rather than later or whatever. So it's just another aspect, another thing. It's just like when you sit down at a new table and you've got a maniac on your right. Well, now you change the way you play than you were playing before when you had a passive guy on your right. So it just it doesn't matter. It's just uh, It just depends on, on how you adjust to it. But uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think it's really going to catch on and everyone's going to be doing it within the next couple of years. Yeah, and I think you're right. The, the one big complaint is this this issue, the short stack. In fact, actually, I read the other day that you know Alan Kessler is suggesting that they get rid of the big blind ante when you redraw to 27, so it doesn't have this kind of effect. But, again, I haven't played it yet. I'm looking for it. I'm going, heading out to um, Thunder Valley here soon, and I'm sure I'll play in an event that has a big blind ante. It'll be my first time actually playing with it, so I'll get firsthand experience. But, um, again, I think it's a lot of, a lot of the... Um, criticism of it is psychological. It's just not people not thinking, "Hey, it's coming out of my my stack now." Now, obviously, there is a, an ongoing debate over what amount you pay first. Is it the ante or your big blind? And that does make a big difference. Um, and that's going to take some while for rooms to work out because um, rooms do it differently. But in terms of just paying it out of your stack, it's it's the same as <laughs> paying it uh, in nine installments. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, find yourself in a situation at your favorite poker room or home game and you're not sure what the proper ruling should have been? Email us at podcast at com. We'll have Hollywood Casino Toledo Director of Poker, Elliot Schechter, tell you how you would have ruled. Some guy named Malcolm O'Malley sent something in this week. Keeps bugging us. Keeps sending this us stuff. Guy, this guy, I tell you. He says, uh, this is kind of long, too, and I have to admit, I didn't read it before, so I'm... <laughs> struggle through this. He said, I was I like in... This one. You're going to like this one. It's a good discussion. <laughs> All right. I was in one of my regular poker rooms that has a mix of locals and tourists. One of the regulars is a guy named Brent, who is 85 and there mostly to socialize. He often tells dad jokes. One of his little dad jokes is to state his bet in pennies. We are in a 1-2 no limit hold'em game, and he's in a hand with a non-regular player. The pot is about 40 bucks, and Brent says 2,000 pennies. The non-regular asked the dealer how much it was, and the dealer, knowing Brent, said 20 bucks. The non-regular asks, no, what did he say? To which the table basically chimed in that he said 2,000 pennies, which is $20. That's just Brent. Leave him be. The bet is 20 bucks. The non-regular uh, player says, since we aren't playing with pennies, the bet should be $2,000. And since Brent only had around $200, that's an all-in bet. A lot of us came to Brent's defense saying that if he wanted to go all in, he would have just said all in. Floor rules the bet is 20 bucks, but tells Brent to stop making bets like that. Brent is crushed. He's just there to have fun, and suddenly he's being attacked by some jack wagon non-regular. Most of us defended Brent, and yet 
a part of me thinks he really shouldn't be making bets like that. But come on, is there really a problem here? Brent wasn't himself the rest of the night and left about two hours early. You could tell it really bothered him. I thought the floor made a proper ruling, but I also think that Brent's uh, opponent player, Brent's opponent player, uh, who, by the way, had flopped the nuts, overreacted and was perhaps angle shooting. Is there room for serious play and jokesters like Brent, or should the game be straight-laced since, for the most part, people are playing for hundreds of dollars? Okay, Elliot says, first, I'd like to say O'Malley's move is insightful and entertaining. Your presentation of situations, uh, the any po- podcast listeners will find themselves at the table, is very well done. Ah, kudos, there we go. All right, he says, second, your instincts about what should and should not have been uh, be done at the poker table and by what the villain was trying to do are pretty much right on. Sociable, friendly games are good for all of us, uh, players and casino workers alike. However, having a great time playing poker doesn't mean you get to make jokes when betting. The jokes about betting amounts are allowed, the jokes about calling or wagering would also have to be allowed. Pretty soon, the rules of betting and poker become unenforceable and then useless. We would never know who bet or how much they bet until players are arguing with the dealers and supervisors. The lack of clear communication about the bet because of a joke opens the door to jack wagons, uh, such as you described here, trying to win by bullying dealers and supervisors and interpreting statements and rules in such a way that the jack wagons are essentially winning on a technicality. I applaud the supervisor in this spot for not allowing the technicality, uh, but and for also telling Brent to make his bets in dollar amounts. There's plenty of room in the game and at the table for serious play and for cut-ups. There's just no room for anyone to be making jokes about betting actions or betting amounts. Yeah, I mean, that's spot on. I think especially the part about, hey, if you're going to allow this, then you have to allow it for everything, which is so true in a lot of things in life. Um, so I think I think in this case he's right. I mean, if everybody knew the guy and it was a home game or something, that's one thing. But when you're out there with strangers that don't know who you are, and you're like two thousand pennies, and then this guy's like, "Wait a minute, you said two thousand in verbal's binding." You know, we're not playing with pennies, so because then they say, "Oh, a hundred clams." You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> How do I know you're not calling pennies the the chips? You know, or whatever. So he's absolutely right in this case, and I feel bad that Brent kind of wasn't himself and whatever happened to him. But uh, in this case, he's absolutely right. This this needs to stop. Uh, make your jokes about everything else, but but what you're putting in the middle, or what you're wanting to put in the middle, or what you're not wanting to put in the middle. Um, but yeah, Elliot's right on there, I think. Yeah, it's just a lot of wrongness in this whole thing. I mean, obviously, <laughs> this um, uh, opponent was straight up angle shooting. I mean, he, he had the rule of law behind him, but um, I think he was just being a bully there over this. Um, but that being said, 2,000 pennies is not a legal bet. So Brent needs to learn this and should have learned it earlier. And that's the other problem, I think, is that everybody there knows he does this, right? So he's been doing it forever. I, I, I have trouble understanding how any dealer or any floor uh, had never at one point suggested to him that that's not um, appropriate. I know you're trying to be funny, uh, but you need to state your bets in dollars. Yeah, I mean, how do you get to jerk about it. Right. You yeah. just have to be you know, nice about it. Yeah. Even having a floor take him aside when he's going to get a cup of coffee or something and say, hey, I don't want to embarrass you at the table. I know you're here to have fun, but um, if you keep betting pennies, someone's going to say something and I'm going to have to rule against you. Um, maybe so you know keep the jokes to non-betting situations and maybe Brent would have been crushed at that point I mean it sounds like he was just in the middle of this big public thing and and that's embarrassing right but it's embarrassing because nobody there had his back up until then and let him know that he shouldn't be doing it and just let him get to a point where he got into the situation so no fun for anyone here but no he's playing he's playing a one-two game imagine if he says four quarters 
<laughs> and he's got two on it in front of him, right? I mean, that, that four quarters is $2 or whatever, or, or a dollar. You know what I mean? It's eight quarters. It's eight quarters. So, I mean, it's like, well, that's $2. That's the big blind. They're like, eight quarters. That's a quarter dollar. Quarters, everyone calls a $25 chip a quarter. So now he's bet 200 bucks there. He's only got 200 in front of him. You know what I mean? So you just you just can't do it. You just can't do it. And, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you, too. I think they should have just said, hey, no, the bet's 20 bucks. Hey, Brent, you got a minute? And pulls him aside and talks to him. You know, and says, hey, listen, you know, I, I love you. You've been here forever, blah, blah, blah. That's a great idea. Um, hey, speaking of O'Malley, here comes this move, and we get to complete it today so we know what, what happens in the end. So here's the first part, and we'll see you on the other side. another O'Malley's move. I'm Malcolm O'Malley. This week we are seated at a $2-$5 No Limit Hold'em cash game in a casino. We've been playing and running well up to this point. We bought in for $500 and currently sit with $1,200. The table goes in waves of aggressiveness and passivity, and it seems as though an aggressive wave has started to die down. We are in the small blind and post. Two MPs call, the button calls, and we look down at the ten of hearts, eight of hearts. We aren't going to do anything crazy here, but we would like to see a flop. We call. The big blind checks. There's about $20 in the pot, max rake taken, and the flop is awesome. The ten of clubs, eight of diamonds, deuce of spades comes down. We aren't going to mess around here. We bet pot, $20. We get a call from an MP and the button who calls somewhat quickly. The button has not been at the table too long. He bought in for 500 and currently sits with 400. From what we can tell, he's pretty tight. He hasn't played many hands. He has won a small pot and lost a medium-sized one with no showdown. There's $80 in the pot and the turn is the five of hearts. We're going to keep up our value betting here. We make it $60 to go. The MP folds. The button looks down at the pot Counts out a call. Counts out his remaining chips, just a bit over 300. Shrugs his shoulders and shoves. So, we've got top two pair on a very dry board. What's the move? First, I would like to say that O'Malley's move is insightful and entertaining. And <laughs> in the situation any podcast listener find themselves at the table is very well done. <laughs> there you go. Uh, okay, no, serious. Uh, had this player not been described as tight, this would be an instant call for me. O'Malley's rides his board is all over the place, so our top two pairs should normally be good here. The only draw is a weird straight draw that doesn't make sense, so our opponent either has a hand or is confident enough that we don't to make this bet. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see a set turned over, but I don't think I can let myself be spooked off this hand. I am calling. Yeah, sorry, but this does reek of like a baby set. It just feels like it, so I think I'm out. Um, I don't have that much money invested here, and I'm of a bunch, so I'm, I'm going to pass. Here goes. Here's part two. Hello again. It's difficult to make a decision here. We have no idea what this guy is capable of, other than we get the sense that he's pretty tight. This board is so safe. It's so safe, it almost seems scary. We have the fifth nuts. There's no straights, no flushes. There's not even a flush draw. We're only losing to a set. Since we don't know much about our opponent, that makes this decision all the more difficult. Could he have something like Ace-10 or King-10? I guess it's entirely possible. But why so much on the turn? Doesn't this board reek of a small blind special hand? I just don't think I can fold this. We call and expect the worst. 
we're greeted with it. Our opponent turns over the deuce of diamonds, deuce of clubs for a flopped set. And after the river blanks, he rakes in the pot. So, should we have seen this coming? Until next time, I'm Malcolm O'Malley saying sometimes deuces hit a set, and there's nothing you can do about it. I hope to see you on the felt. I think O'Malley did a good job explaining how difficult this decision was. Uh, The weird board did make us all think that a set was likely, but because it was such a weird board, lots of lesser hands could have uh, been emboldened to make a move on it, and I think that's what was the tricky part here. Yeah, and this is why sets are so coveted. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just it's so it's either well disguised or it makes you think or when you hit your two way up high and this guy's got a little baby set down here, you just your mind is thinking top two, top two or whatever, and you like you just and all these straight draws and stuff don't get there, and that's why they're just they're just so that's why everyone is so willing to even call these decent or even big raises with baby pairs because they just want to hit that set and get that big payoff. Sucks to lose though, hate that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, it's time for the advancedpokertraining.com hand of the week. Send your hands or situations to podcast at antiapmagazine.com. If you haven't won something from us in the past year, you'll get a free membership to Advanced Poker Training, the world's number one poker training site. Comes from Quimper, who's been with us a long time, <laughs> back in the age days. And, uh, he says he was in a 1-2 no-limit hold'em cash game recently and playing for only about 30 minutes when this hand happened. The big blind is very loose aggro. He straddled his last hand, popping it to 27 bucks. In the last 30 minutes, any hand limps to him has been raised to $17. He sits with a squiggly 450. Under the gun has played about five hands. A solid player, haven't seen him get out of the line. Squiggly $325 in his deck. And we are starting the hand with squiggly 360 uh, under the gun straddles, uh, middle position player raises to 15, and we are in the hijack with the tray of spades, tray of clubs. Yeah, we just talked a minute ago about people wanting to play baby, baby cards for a set uh, and calling ridiculous raises for it. Um, well, I don't mind that raise. It feels like there's an under the gun straddler, and there's going to be a lot of people in his hand. And I guess that's the right thing to do is to just call because of that. Um but I, I don't know. I, sometimes I wonder if the straddler does what he, what they normally do when they straddle, and he goes goes back to him and he makes it fifty or sixty or something. I've wasted fifteen bucks, so I guess I'd have to get a feel for how that under the gun straddler plays. You know that. Um, I mean, I think we have here. It says he was solid. So um, I don't know. I guess I would probably probably call just to hope to hit a set and you know win a big hand here because it just feels like there's going to be a lot of people in this hand but if that straddler is somebody who routinely re-raises or raises when no one when no one raises then I might get out of this hand so I'm going to call but with the caveat that if I know exactly what the under the gun player has been doing all day with the straddles uh, and he does something I don't like with it then I would fold yeah I think that's a perfect analysis of it I mean we're we're well under the very general rule of thumb of 10% of our stack to set mine with so the call is um, perfectly acceptable here, but yeah, you're right. If the undergun raises the straddles every single time, then we know that whatever that raise is going to be is, unless it's a stupid min raise, um, that raise is going to be more than our 10%. Um, so then we're wasting the $15. So yeah. he hasn't given us any information on the undergun other than he's played only five hands and he's a solid player. 
um, which, you know, he's a solid player, but straddles, so I question that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but he has, it hasn't seemed to get out of line, so uh, at this point, with the information we have, I'm going to assume that the straddler might just wrap the table, or, I mean, call the raise here and um, let us go to the flop for 15 bucks. so I'm going to take the shot. So, 15 bucks call. All right. All right, that's what our hero does. Uh, small blind folds, big blind calls, and the straddler calls. So we get this a flop for the 15 bucks. That's good. Uh, pot's 56 bucks now. The flop is the five of spades, ten of clubs, tray of hearts. So we hit our set. Uh, the big blind checks. Uh, the under the gun player bets 25, and the player in between us folds. So it's on to us now. Well, because it's the under-the-gun player who was in a straddle and only called and didn't do anything, I, I obviously think they don't have a set here. Because if they had 10s, they definitely would have popped it pre-flop. If they had pocket 5s, I think they probably slow play it to let the mid-player take advantage, you know, because he had control of the hand. Just check to him, let him bet, and get some more. Maybe you'll get some other people to call, and then he could pop it with check-raise. So feels like betting out we're ahead of that hand, uh, those ranges. Now, I don't know. There's at least one player between us, so I don't know what that guy who's raising is going to do. Did, did did that person fold to that bet? Yeah, the original better folded. So. Okay, original better fold. Okay, so, yeah, I think I think we're way ahead here. Um, and I know you don't like to say that, but <laughs> I, I think they are way ahead in this situation. Yeah, I agree, I agree, absolutely agree. So um, it's do for the best value here. Yeah, so I think I'm just going to try to get as much money out of this guy, and I think raising won't be the way to do that. I think if we raise here, he could just be taking a stab at it, believing that you know the other guy had ace king or something and or whatever. So I feel like a call is probably in order at least on this street, and then see what happens after that. If somebody pops it behind me or something, I'm going crazy with raises now. But if it, right. you know, so I think I'm just going to call and see what happens after that. Yeah, I think that this board is not scary. It's it's a rainbow flop. Uh, the only straight possibilities are wheel cards. Um, so I'm not too scared about anything that's going to come on the next card. So let's do a 25. Maybe we get the big blind to come along. Um, and then let the end of the gun player bet again on the turn. And then at that point, that's probably the time that we need to start getting some money in this pot. But right now, yeah, I think you're right. I don't want to scare anybody out of here with a hand that I feel is, is way above everybody else's right now. So. Yeah. All right, Rear says, uh, safe flop for my set. Lots of 10s and opponent's ranges. I assume the 10-10 would have raised pre-flop. Uh, call is the best play to get more money in the pot, so I call. All right, so we're all in agreement. Uh, big blind calls as well, too, so that's nice. Uh, pot's 131 going into the turn, which is the 8 of diamonds. 5 of spades, 10 of clubs, tray of hearts, 8 of diamonds is our board. Big blind checks again, and the other gun bets 30 now. Okay, so here's where I think I'm going to start making some pressure. I, I don't feel like at this point, I realize right now it's still just this dry board of there's no flush going to get there, very few straights get there. But it does feel a lot like somebody could have something like Ace Deuce suited, and now I'm giving them their call price to call to, to get to the wheel. Uh, it could feel like that. Um, also, if somebody keeps betting, it feels like they have a hand that they're confident enough to call a raise now. You know, if if, if somebody bets 25 on the street before and gets two callers, and then that person bets again on the next street after those two callers, 
I feel like that person has enough in his hand now that I could probably raise him and get him to to call me. And if if he doesn't call me, then he's not going to call me on the river when the hand he's trying to make doesn't get there, or if the hand he has, you know, that he thinks is good enough to bet here is is probably not going to call on the river because he's going to check to us then. So I really feel like we need to make our money on the turn here. And we need to thin this field. I think we still have too many people in this hand who could be well, somebody could be drawing with an ace tray or something like that. Ace deuce, no ace tray because it's a three on the board. So ace deuce, something like that. Ace five was not not a hand. So that so I think you know ace four, ace deuce, something like that suited that could still hit a wheel for these you know because now the pot's only growing and the bets aren't really getting any bigger. So I think I need to put the hammer down here now and put make it a hundred. And just see if somebody who maybe does have ace ten and didn't raise or something would come along or, or whatever. Because really we're only we're only trailing pocket fives, pocket tens, and pocket eights, and at least two of those hands probably would have raised that straddler or raised our that mid position raiser. So I feel like uh, we're still ahead, but we need to protect ourselves here. And so I'm gonna make it a hundred. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you definitely need to raise here. Um, it, it's the amount that uh, I'm I'm struggling with. Uh, I I don't understand the thirty dollar bet from uh, our opponent here. If that's you know less than fourth of the pot, um, so I don't know if that's a hey. I also have a set and I'm trying to keep people interested in this hand, or or what that means. Um, but definitely need to raise to find out that, um, or not get more money in. Um, I initially was thinking like, like a 75 or something, so two and a half X rays, which would probably be fine. But I, I think I like your 100 now. I think um, you get the benefit of making it sound like we're overbetting the pot on a board that doesn't look like it. This is a lot like the O'Malley board, isn't it? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, so it makes it look like you're you're really trying to steal this pot, and maybe you get some action that way that you wouldn't get if it's a little bit less or get people more interested in it. Um, I guess my only bet with ra- worry with the 100 is if we get raised. Now, I mean, I'm looking at this board, and I can't see anything else. I, I can't see anything that would raise us other than another set. A two-pair doesn't look likely here. No one's raising with that straight draw that we're talking about. Um, I don't think anybody's raising. We re-raise our raise with a naked 10, even an ace-10. Um... So I guess that would be our answer um, at that point. Then I don't know what we're going to do if we bet 100 here and then some of the other guy shoves on us. Well, uh, you're falling for that classic beginner line of playing the cards instead of the people. Like, if you got this big blind guy who is this super aggro, crazy maniac, if that guy shoves, do you really think he's playing cards? Does he really have to have a hand to do that? Or is he just a maniac? And we're sitting there with a set. You know, I just it just seems to me like the sets that would have been hit here would have raised free flop other than five five. And it just feels like that's such a specific set over set for us that I just can't I I think that's I'm true. I'm gonna lose yeah. my stack here if, if somebody has a set. I just do. Um yeah. but if somebody has the wheel cards and they're getting in for thirty bucks or whatever. And to me when it's a pot after that thirty the pot's like hundred and sixty or so, so to me a hundred dollar bet is really not that big. No, it's not. It's just a, it's a bigger raise. It's, it's a bigger it's a, raise, you know what I mean? Yes, because the, the initial bet was improper. So, yeah, you're right. I'm playing the player here now, and I think that I got one guy here who can play any kind of hands, and I, I need to get him out. And I got another guy who's betting a weird amount on this street, and I feel like I need to get one of them out and one of them to call or both of them out and just take it down now. 
hoping that these guys aren't playing suited aces that can get there at the end. So, um, yeah, I think you agree with the 100, so we're, I think I'm going to go with the 100 still. All right. Let's see uh, what our, our hero says. Uh, he says, all right, that's a small bet. Ace-5, ace-tray, ace-10, even 8-10 surely would have been more secure with his hand. 8 is a safe card for me. Not many river cards would scare me away, and many rivers would, would help give villains two pair for a nice river bet. Both players have a 10. Uh, with such a small bet, I think a raise would get the straddle to release his weak holding, and I will lose value on the river. So I call. Ooh. All right. We'll see how that plays out, but... I mean, do, do you really? It's weird. I mean, by calling now, if the big blind's drawing, you've got he's got fantastic odds to just call here. And yeah, you're 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 he's kind of doing what my dad would do with aces with twenty guys in the hand. You know what I mean? Just letting them keep get in for their price and hoping at the end I've got these big pocket aces. And meanwhile, the other guys got there easily because you didn't make it enough to make them sweat it or play the wrong odds to do it. So. Yeah, I, I would never call there, especially with somebody behind me who's just a, you know, a jack wagon. Is that the, yeah. the word of <laughs> jack, the day? Jack wagon. <laughs> um, all right, I don't know. We'll see how it works out. Um, the big blind calls as well, too. So pod is 221. And here it says, judging by his check calls, I assume the big blind has a weaker holding. Uh, King 5, Queen 10, Jack 10, 6, 7, Ace 2, Ace 4, and is calling for value. The river is the ace of spades, so our final board, five of spades, ten of clubs, tray of hearts, eight of diamonds, ace of spades. The big blind wakes up now and bets a hundred. <laughs> oh, uh, man. Straddler folds. It's back to us. Heads up. Uh, well, I mean, the like he said earlier, something about, you know, a river could give him two pair. This could be somebody. That's the thing, though, is if he, what ace stuck around this long? that gave him two pair well you know? we didn't raise so i mean if we would have raised like we we talked about on the turn i i think like a ace 10 might have got out of that or uh, ace five or any of these ace combinations we're talking about yeah. but we did so for 30 dollars at that point i'm sticking around with any pair and an ace i think right? yeah yeah i guess so yeah especially if i had but, ace 10 and that's great for us now if that's the case you know because we got that crush so What's um, odd though is would the, the ace ten have called and checked all this way? Did you hear? I don't know if you heard me because I kind of talked over you there. But did, if you're the big blind with ace ten, and you're that maniac who likes to bet crazy and everything, do you really keep check calling with two well, guys in the hand? The maniac, right? The, yeah, the maniac's the guy that just folded here. Big no, blind that's a, oh, I'm sorry, you're a very the loose big blind is a maniac, right? Yeah. So the big blind does he really just call with ace ten? First of all, does he just do that pre-flop, considering how he, he just described to me earlier? But even if he does, now he's hit top pair, top kicker, and he just sits there and checks the whole time and calls for two streets? And I don't think so. So to me, this guy doesn't have ace-10, that's for sure. Does he have ace-5? Does he really do that with ace-5? I just I feel like this guy doesn't have two pair. I feel like it's something's weird here. I don't know what it is. I don't think it's ten set of 10s or set of 8s or set of aces, though. I don't know. This guy's got deuce that's four. That's the only thing that's scary to us is that this guy was just sticking around with pocket aces and waiting for the action to happen, which doesn't fit his profile at all, I don't think. I mean, if you're a loose, aggressive player, you, you're loose, aggressive with your big hands as well as your yeah. your weaker hands. Yeah. That's why it works, because people can never figure out whether you're doing it with junk or good hands. So I'm going to be really shocked if he turns over pocket aces here. And that's the only hand that I feel that I'm really worried about. Well, I mean, if 
if you go back in time and you think of Deuce 4, which if he has that, I'm going to probably vomit all over my microphone. But if you think about Deuce 4, okay, so you've got all this money in the pot and he's a crazy wild guy and he's in the blind for already two bucks. He's only got to call 13 to win what would end up being almost 60. Then he flops five tray. He's got an open-ended draw. Right, yeah. And a moron bets 25 and another guy calls. So now he's only got to call 25 to hit an open-ended straight draw. That'll be incredibly disguised with 130 in the pot after that call. Then, in the end, we only bet 30. We let him stay in for that 30. He checks again. Guy bets just 30, and we call. Now he's open-ended for to call 30 to win over 200 to win with a straight that's going to be well-disguised. And now he hits it. Now he bets out. I, I mean, the betting out is kind of weird because I think, I think I know why he bets out if he does have the wheel. I think he bets out because he's afraid we're all going to check behind or whatever. And so... You know, yeah, because all these people are calling, calling, calling. So I think he thinks I'm going to get some money in now because if I don't, they're going to check behind. And there's no chance they're going to call. So I, I don't know. It's it, it, what hand bets a hundred here that played it from the beginning the way these guys played it, other than Deuce four or maybe five five. I just feel like this guy, if he had five five, even pre flop might have done something because he's so loose aggro. But if not, you know, can he really be that patient for that long with a set? You know, essentially because he has to act first and he's going to lose value thinking they're going to check behind. Sure, because the same thing we said, the board is really uh, dry there. So he could have gotten away with that, especially because you've got this other guy betting your hand for you. Um, Although I think he would have been worried that he's losing value there, too, when he saw his second bet is weak, too, 30 bucks. And and, um, And then just calls after that. So that when he, on that river, if he checks now, he's going to automatically think someone's going to check behind twice. So I I don't know I, I'm feeling more and more like Deuce Four now, which is sickening. But I mean I'm gonna call because it's such a big pot and I got a set. But I'm not gonna raise. I well, think we've done nothing to define anybody's range here, so that's the other problem. I know it might be weak to, and I feel pretty confident that we are right ahead here, which means we should raise. But we, we, we again we've no, we've done nothing to really figure out what the big blind has. So I mean that Deuce Four is very likely. Um, I suppose a set of fives or eights are likely as well too. Um, less likely a set of tens. So I mean, at this point, since we we don't have any other information, I'm gonna call here, and um, that's a three hundred dollar pot there. Yeah, so yeah. It's I mean I I might be giving up some value, but um, I'll be happy with that rather than raise and shove and find out this guy turns over deuce four and be out more money. So. Yeah, exactly. So I just called with three to one of my money with a set. And you know, learn from it if I lose, and be grateful that I wasn't behind if I win. So yeah, and we'll find out exactly after we see the hand here uh, how important our raise on the turn that we suggested is. Um, and maybe it was a bad move. We'll find out. All right, our hero says this is a good card for me. Uh, it completes uh, many two pairs, gets some top pair if he was chasing the wheel. Ace also plays a scare card if he puts me on a weaker. On the weaker tens in my range, the hundred dollar bet I've noted is a nice scare bet and is one two uh in a one two game in this room, getting nine knot hands to fold on the river to miss draws and scare cards. I'm losing the ace ace, ten ten, eight eight, five five, and deuce four. Ace ace and ten ten are not likely if they've been raised by the aggro player pre flop. Eight eight is possible, as is five five, and he could have been walking dog just as I was. Uh deuce four is a long shot. A little bit less of a long shot as we described, but we'll yeah. see. 
Uh, but better than three to one odds, I make the call. Player declares that he didn't uh, even pay attention to his hand until the river rolled out and shows the four of hearts. <laughs> Dude's a diamond. <laughs> oh, okay. That's me throwing up. I smile, slide a $100 bill under my chips, and await the next hand. An hour later, uh, he wasn't laughing when I cracked his aces in a stack on the other flop set, this one playing much more aggressively. Oh, oh man. So that is even worse. The guy's like, yeah, I didn't pay attention to my hand. Come on. There's no way you called a $15 raise and didn't pay attention to your hand, and then you called oh, a $25 bet aggressive. and didn't pay attention I mean, to your what's, hand. The, what's the danger in doing that? Because you're never playing your cards. You know, unless you you fight a hit and then you get lucky. So I mean, I would imagine those players more than off more often than us will not look at their cards. But not in the big blind. Did. It's one thing if you're in position and you're just playing players. It's another thing to have to keep checking behind with deuce four. This guy's lying through his teeth. It's one thing if he's <laughs> in the, on the button. You know what I mean? If you're on the button and you're like, okay, I know these guys are weak and I know the way they play and I know when this guy raises pre-flop, he's got ace-king, so when he misses the flop, I'll play him or, or I'll play him on the turn or something and I play my cards blind. It's another thing to be like, I'm in the big blind and I'm calling a straddle and I'm calling a raise and I'm calling a bet and I'm calling another bet. So I've bet $70 without even paying attention to my cards for four streets or whatever the hell it is. I doubt it. So he's lying. He's just trying to get you even more pissed off. <laughs> Which you did here because I threw up all over myself. Deuce four, but it makes sense. It makes sense when you play it back in your head the way it went down. It makes sense for a guy like this to call a little small raise with multiple players in the pot in the big blind, and then flopping an open-ended draw. You have to. You can't blind yourself to the hands that help you, the cards that help you. You have to think about how those cards and what he's doing in the story that hurts that helps him. And I'm I'm glad you just called the hundred though. That's yeah, so now let's go back to what I said before. I didn't, again, I didn't remember how this hand ended until I just read it. But uh, all right, let's say on the turn we raised a hundred, like we said. What what's going to happen to this guy? He, he's not going to call that hundred, is he? I don't know. Probably probably not. With one card to come, and he's got to hit a wheel. There's not enough implied odds for him at that point because we started with three sixty. So. Um, so we don't have like 200 behind and we'd be the only opponent left because the other one folded so I don't know I, I, again not result oriented but that's the way I think we should have played it from the beginning but it, it in this case it would have worked both ways both it would have been I think the proper raise and two would have won us this pot yeah. so plus the guy would see you betting like that it might put you on something like ace 10 which eliminates his outs one of his outs I mean you know what I mean because he needs to hit an ace or whatever so Oh, or six, so he he could be saying, you know what, this guy's probably got ace ten. That's another one of my outs out, and he bet a hundred, and I'm going to have one card to come, uh, and I'm just not going to get enough out of this guy to make this call profitable. So you're right. I, I think that that turn bet is the key. It really is the key here, um, especially because the guy bet thirty bucks. At that point, it's like I got to get some money out of these people now and protect my hand as well and thin the field. And none of that happened, and that's what happened. That's why he lost another hundred on top of it. But at least it's only 100 and not your whole stack. Right. Yeah. I'm Chris Casenza. And I'm Scott Long. We'll see you at the table. Anti-Up is a production of antiupmagazine.com. Contact the show at podcast at antiupmagazine.com or call our hotline at 206-338-6344. If you'd like to advertise, send an email to advertising at antiupmagazine.com or call 727-331-4335. Some music used in this episode comes courtesy of the Podsafe Music Network.
Quimper is back. He's been with us for a long time, back in the uh, Apes days. And, oh, shoot, hold on. Quimper. Turn the hand down to find you an email. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm leaving all of this stuff in the show this week. It's not coming out. All right, how do you want me to do this? Let me, uh, let me start back over to Quimper. No, I want you to just keep going. We're going to leave it in. Show everybody how, how unfocused you are these days. I love it. Leave it in. Go ahead. Read the hand of the week.